Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. Today, we're going to discuss the fallout of the recent elections in the Netherlands, where the far-right Party for Freedom secured a surprising victory. Then we will talk about the fallout from the German Constitutional Court's decision to limit the German government's funding and what this means for Europe. And finally, we will turn to a conversation with Dan Kellerman, Senior Associate with the CSIS Europe-Russia-Eurasia Program and the McCourt Chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. And we will discuss Hungary's most recent attempt to block EU support for Ukraine and preview a crucial December meeting at the European Council. We hope you enjoy the show. So let's turn to talk about the Netherlands. They ha- what, what happened? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a great story, as in it's not a cheerful story. I have to say, I didn't see this coming. So the far-right party, Party for Freedom, or Partei voor Vrijheid, which is led by Geert Wilders, who's a far-right figure, uh, really extreme views on many things in the Netherlands, got the most votes in the election that took place on November 22nd. They got 37 seats out of 150 in parliament, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in a country that has had a lot of trouble forming coalitions that are stable, this is a really big deal. Um, They had 17 seats in 2021, so two years ago. So that's a huge increase from 17 to 37. Uh, that's, That's really the big takeaway is I expected the center left, so uh uh, Timmermans, who was at the European Commission before, to do better. But uh, his party, which is an alliance of the center-left and the Greens, got 25 seats, which is the second largest party. And then the party of outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutte got 24 seats. But that's down from 34 in 2021. So it's a big shakeup in the, in Dutch elections. I think that's the big takeaway, but a shakeup leaning way to the right from where we are today. It's one of those where the election essentially became centered on issues of migration and asylum policy. And this is sort of what led Ruta to sort of call it quits and said that he was going to call early elections. I think one of the major takeaways from a lot of folks is that if you don't want the far right to win, then don't run elections based off of the political terrain where far right parties do very well. We saw something similar in Sweden, where the far right Sweden Democrats became the largest uh, party on the the right side of the spectrum and are effectively enabled uh, the formation of a of a of a center right right wing coalition. The takeaway there also was don't center your politics around migration if you don't want the far right to win because what voters who care about those topics will like well why would I vote for the imitation when I can vote for the real yeah, thing? Yeah, you won't Gert beat v- them on their own. Turf. Right. And Gert Wilders is the real thing if you want a hardline hawkish uh, approach to asylum and immigration. And it's not just that. I think it's important to note that he's clearly anti-migration, anti-any most forms of immigration, but he's also anti-EU. He's for closing mosques, like strongly Islamophobic. He's a climate skeptic. And on the EU front, it's you made a comment about Ruta having tried to play the game on migration. I think in recent years, his uh, Rutus party, the VVD, hit the move of the party towards being more 
hard line on some decisions at the EU level on the budget, etc., I think has made it a more normal thing to talk about in Dutch politics that, well, we need to really, you know, turn and screw on the EU to make sure we don't spend more. What are our priorities? It just turns the European Union into this remote thing rather than something they're all part of that we really need. And I think Dutch people are still very strongly supportive of the European Union, but it's just been in the political climate for too long now. And that allows Wilders to jump on this. Yeah, I think, you know, we also I think if you go back in in the election race, there was this was an election where um, the the leaders of the the two center right or centrist parties uh, both stepped down, so Hoekstra and uh, and Ruta. So you kind of had a vacuum there. Wilders sort of did what Marie Le Pen has been doing and sort of normalizing herself, and this is also what Maloney and others have 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 been doing, uh, and seemed more mild. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion of this: is hey, he doesn't seem that extreme anymore. There wasn't a lot of talk about uh, uh, Netherlands exit or anything like that or shutting down Moss. Uh, and now everyone's looking at uh, what his party platform is and being like, oh, yeah, this guy is actually quite extreme. So in some ways, you know, does this mean sort of the downfall of the European Union? I think we can really overstate the implications or overstate uh, what this implies about the future direction of European politics. In part, you know, they got 25% of the vote, I think, I think around that. It's a sizable number, not sort of that outlandish when you look at other countries and how the far right is doing, it's similar to sort of the AFD. Uh, I think the, and it was also the case, like the EU wasn't really seen as being on the ballot. And when you compare that to like Poland, where the EU was on the ballot, or we at least portrayed that, the EU then does, you know, pretty, pretty well. But where they are now is they have to form a coalition. And this is, I think, a big question. because and if, notoriously difficult in uh, the Netherlands in the last few years. Because I think that when you look forward and what does this mean for Europe and how, why should Washington care about you know, an election in the Netherlands, the big question is, A, is Wilders become prime minister? Or B, is he part of a coalition that then has to take a really uncompromising approach to anything at the EU level? And he's also anti-Ukraine funding and, and sort of very pro-Russian. And there's been implications of, of him and, and his, his sort of ties to the Kremlin previously. But so how is the coalition building going or what do we expect? Well, I think it's going to take a while because it not just because it has the last time around, but because this is such complicated math. You have so many parties in government right now, including some that have two, three seats that you could just kind of throw in the mix. But also because some of the big other party leaders had said we're not entering into a coalition with him. And now I think now it's going to be a test of everybody's word in the last few weeks and of their principles. I think some will stay the course and others might be convinced. I don't want us to be too naive, though, about the ability of a right, far-right coalition to tame some of Wilders' worst ideas. Like, if there are ways to slowly break down the democratic consensus in some places. But I think, bottom line, it's going to take a long time. But there are two options here. I think there's a right, far-right coalition if Rutte's party decides that they're okay going into a coalition with Geert Wilders. And there's a new party that was formed in August for, by someone who broke away from the Christian Democrats, which is, I would say, a center-right party. 
That leader has said absolutely not, but who knows? You know, if it goes on weeks and weeks and weeks. So that's one option. The other option is really just a grand coalition to keep Wilder's party out and try to form something together. You need multiple parties to do this, including several that were in the previous governing coalition, the one that Ruta pulled the plug on. So that would be really unstable as well. So I could see also both of these options could lead us to a place where that coalition just stumbles along. They give it a shot and then something blows up over migration or some EU decision because somebody doesn't want to compromise. Because that's, to be honest, that's also what happened in Belgium. We, for a long time, they were trying to keep the NVA, which is the independent, like Flemish independence kind of party, not the far right Vlamsbelang, that's different, from the federal coalition. And at some point there was no way to keep them out, so they brought them in. And then the coalition fell over a migration issue. So it's, I, I think we're going towards that. The the previous coalition, it took 299 days for that to form. I also think there's a third option, which is that they just can't form any yeah, working there could be other elections. governing coalition. And then there'll be another call, a call for new elections. And I think that would make some sense to me just when you look at sort of the Pedro Sanchez miracle, and I use that in sort of air quotes, of of him sort of surviving basically a massive backlash election on the kind of legislative side, immediately calling for new elections and then winning when then people realized like, oh my God, they didn't actually want the far right to be governing or to be a major player. And so I could see it being in the center right party's interest to play along, try to form a government but then it doesn't work out, then you're not going to form one with the center left. And then and then it's sort of in everyone's interest to just go have a fight. And then you don't make it about migration. You make it about, do we want to be kind of led by an extreme far-right party that has it wants to leave the EU and all these other things? And then it becomes more of a referendum on that. And that focuses the mind somewhat. And I think you also make it about competence. Because we've seen in other countries in Europe that they tried to keep those far-right parties out of government for a long time, and then at some point they keep winning more and more seats, and at some point you can't say no, and then they come in, and what a lot of people realize is they made a lot of promises that they couldn't actually keep because it's sometimes made up of people who are not that competent at doing government work. They were great at campaigning about extreme stuff, but not actually governing. So that's something that honestly might also diffuse it if it happens without creating too much damage in the process. So speaking of political instability, let's turn to Dutch neighbors in Germany. Things are still, everyone's still reeling from the Constitutional Court's decision a few weeks ago to say that the climate uh, fund that Germany had set aside, that the German government had set aside to support a lot of transitions was not constitutional and that they couldn't use repurposed COVID funds to support these efforts. So... Max, what's happening in so, Berlin? I think last time I went on a bit of a rant, and I'm going to try what? not to do that this time. <laughs> uh, because this, I think, is one of those events, that issues, that is actually uh, incredibly impactful to the future of Europe and European politics and to American interests in Europe, such as more European defense spending. And I think maybe to sort of put this in context or provide a quick update. All right. So the Constitutional Court basically said 
that the way Germany was financing all these uh, activities, such as defense and climate, uh, was not constitutional because Germany has this debt break, which then says, well, you know, you can't spend over a certain amount. And it's it the, in an American context, it, it's a bit like taking the Ukraine supplemental and let's say that passed and then the Supreme Court said, no, you couldn't do supplemental funding. And then suddenly the U.S. government would be forced to figure out, well, how do we fund Ukraine? Well, it would have to come out of the Pentagon budget. So what would that mean? Well, that would mean lots of cuts to Pentagon spending, at the very least, very hard choices about how they were going to spend the money. What we see now is suddenly the the German constitutional court has taken this huge amount of money uh, there's some questions of how much that will actually be, but perhaps as much as 1% of the German budget and sort of said, no, you can't spend that. So they have to find ways to either raise revenue, increase taxes, cut spending, or or cut spending. Those are the, the two options. Or lift the debt break. Now, the debt break is in the Constitution, so it required two-thirds, so it's very hard, and the CDU is you know not being cooperative here. So what they what they have initially decided is to just declare another emergency for next year's budget. I think this is quite reasonable because there this was all sort of a bit of a shock. So for next year, it looks like things will sort of be maintained. However, the problem for this coalition is that everyone has sort of different spending priorities or different priorities. So the CDU or sorry, the FDP doesn't want for the government to spend a lot of money and doesn't want to raise taxes. So they are against raising taxes to address this budget hole and therefore uh, cutting spending. Well, then you have uh, the party of Chancellor Schultz, SDP, which is for spending on social issues, on basically transfers to labor and and addressing inequality that way. Then you have the Greens, which are for spending money on the green transition, on climate, which, you know, Germany needs to do because they're now losing money or they're now having really high energy costs because suddenly there's no cheap Russian gas and German energy is really expensive. So where's the money going to come from? Are you going to cut you know, social transfers? Are you going to cut climate? Are you going to raise taxes? And no one wants to give up on their thing. And oh, there's this thing called defense spending as well. Now, defense spending, because it's now embedded in the constitution, you know, they had like two thirds. I think it's embedded in the constitution how they did it. So that is seemingly protected, but who is going to compromise here? So they're sort of punting that decision until next year. But what this is doing is also having uh, impacts on the debate at the European level. Um, and what and how much funding will go to the EU. Germany is now being very cautious about how it spends its money, so it doesn't want to support more EU funding. So while it's saying it will support more funding for Ukraine at the European Council, well, other things that the EU needs to fund, now suddenly it's holding back. There's a whole nother issue as well, and that's the Stability and Growth Pact, which is due to reset on January 1st. So Christian Lindner of the FDP, uh, who's the finance minister, has been driving a very hard bargain. And now I think we can expect that to probably continue. And what that means is that the Stability and Growth Pact, which says that you can only run a budget uh, deficit of uh, 3% of GDP, will go back into force, that the emergency from COVID will be suspended. But the problem there is countries like France and Italy and others are not going to hit it. Well, even for Germany, that's a hard target when well, they're looking at, well, maybe not with the well, budget they have, but it's, Germany a, will hit it. It will it's likely, a problem for multiple, multiple member states. Yes. So then you have a question of this rigid 
economic rule that makes little economic sense and is pro-cyclical, meaning that when you're in a recession, you means you're just going to cut more spending to constantly hit this target that no one's going to adhere to is not great. And the other problem is that there's sort of a new uh, effort, I think a new movement kind of emerging within European economic circles. The Dutch head of central bank has has articulated this as well as a number of other policy papers, including one by Federico Steinberg, who's a non-resident with us, but with uh, Gunter Wolf of the German uh, Council on Foreign Relations. And that says, well, okay, have tight fiscal spending rules for European states, but then have the EU have money. So the EU acts the way the US does, where we states can't have deficits, but then there's someone providing broader European public goods. But the FDP is against that. So right now what we see is European economic policy is really stuck, where Germany may revert back into this sort of austerity approach, which will be bad for the German economy, I think, because they need to invest because their infrastructure is falling apart and energy sector, and they're not going to do that if they cut spending. And that's so that'll be bad for the overall European growth. And there's opposing broader spending on the EU level. So who's providing European public goods? And what does this mean for defense spending, which Americans care about? Well, it means defense spending is likely not going to be sustained in this 2% that people are going to hit or countries are going to hit for maybe next year for the Washington summit does not look sustainable if we are back into an era of having to kind of look at, you know, reducing budget deficits. And that's the major focus of European economics. Yeah. And I will add on top of that, just for the FDP, it's actually not, there's another issue, which is industry itself, which is supposed to be part of its big constituency, is saying that this climate transformation fund was important for them. It's not just for fun, like things that are not necessary. They're not feel-good projects. They're really key to how the country transforms, to how industry itself transforms, because they know they're going to need help to get there. They can't really do that without subsidies, to be honest. So... At some point, the FDP is just holding on to a an orthodoxy that I don't know that will keep working for them. And on top of it, an administrative court in Berlin also said, which is kind of the opposite, that the German government has repeatedly failed to meet emission reduction targets and that it has to offer emergency action programs to inc improve climate policies. So now multiple court levels in Germany are created a situation where government is completely stuck between those two things, uh, which I don't know how they navigate that. And then, of course, that has an impact on the EU targets for 2030, which was supposed to reduce by 55% from 1990 levels. So the FDP answer here, at least theoretically, is what, well, we should do it through carbon pricing and through our emissions trading scheme. And so it should just be more expensive to, reduce car to release carbon. But we're starting- That makes your industry- Yeah. Less competitive. Right. I mean, you're starting to get to the point where are you going to really have a granny tax and, and, and price out people from turning on gas boilers and force, uh, you know, mom and pop. Uh, or businesses and homeowners just start uh, just start accelerating their transition without providing them subsidies. Oh, that seems like something that would create a real backlash if you're not subsidizing that effort. So if you just do everything through the market, we're now hitting those harder areas politically. So I don't see. So there, you're right. There's two things in competition. There's the German government legally has to reduce emissions and is now, according to the Constitutional Court, and it has this debt break. 
I don't know what we'll give. What is pretty clear, and this is maybe a final point for we uh, transition to the interview, is that this sort of upends the coalition. So whether it can survive 2024, I think, is a big question. It may be by declaring an emergency now, they can just sort of get through the next year. And then 2025 is an election year. So that, you know, it doesn't, how are they going to do a, a budget that meets these requirements? Right now, they're punting that decision. So I, I think we could see elections in Germany, not in the fall of 2025, but perhaps earlier. And there'll be a lot at stake because uh, right now, and I, maybe final thought on this is that it was one thing with Angela Merkel. She didn't, I would argue, I didn't provide a lot of vision for where she wanted Europe to go. However, she in some ways kept Europe together and was able to, you know, pointed to during European summits as, as sort of moving Europe forward. That She was who Washington called when there was, you know, an issue in Europe. No one's really calling Olaf Schultz because he's not advocating any sort of vision. He's in some ways stuck by the coalition, but there hasn't been a lot of leadership from the German chancellor at the European level. And I think that is putting Europe in a, in a, in a real spot of bother and confusion as it heads into a, a new election cycle and, you know, really difficult um, situations with Ukraine. And even before the election, heading into a summit where there's so many difficult decisions that are coming and they have a chancellor coming to Brussels unable to deliver really anything yeah. or any promise. Right. So. And, and, and essentially that is Europe just is stuck now ba because of German Germany's you know political uh, and economic situation. Uh, with that. For something <laughs> even more cheerful. Yeah. <laughs> we will turn uh, to the interview with Dan Kellerman to talk about Hungary and how it's essentially holding uh, everything hostage at the EU level, including funding for Ukraine. Great. I am here with Dan Kellerman, a non-resident at CSIS and a professor at Georgetown's McCourt School. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for being here. We're here to talk Hungary's hostage taking, and they've taken a rather big hostage, uh, both the European Council Summit meeting that is coming up, which uh, everyone had expected would lead to official uh, ascension talks with Ukraine. Ukraine would be taking sort of the next step on the enlargement process, but also uh, provide a lot of funding uh, for Ukraine uh, in, in the EU's budget talks. Uh, maybe you could outline how unprecedented is this that Orban is sort of holding up and taking hostage essentially uh, an entire European Council summit meeting? And, and, and what is your kind of reaction to what the Hungarians are doing? Thanks, Max, and thanks for having me on the Europhile. As to your question, it's not really unprecedented. In fact, Orban has done this before, um, maybe not with such grave consequences or you know threat of the grave consequences, but he's done it before. If you go back to 2020, when they were trying to finalize the multi-annual EU budget in the December 2020, he and also the Polish government um, at the time of the uh, PIS uh, party, uh, they basically held hostage the entire EU multi-year budget um, because they wanted to make sure or were trying to resist the idea that EU funds might be uh, made conditional on respecting rule of law norms. They also held hostage you know, particular policy files like um, sort of EU cooperation on global corporate minimum tax, some things like that. So we've seen this tool before. 
Um, but this is at a scale that exceeds all the others, I suppose. Yeah, Orban has has written two letters, and his essential demand seems to be like just don't want to move forward on Ukraine and not to fund Ukraine. So, what are the kind of responses that you think are necessary? Now, the EU got through those previous uh, hostage taking events and and has has found a way to get Hungary to sign on to sanctions packages uh, dealing with Russia. Why now, if you're Orban? Why take such a big hostage in terms of Ukraine, and is is there when he hasn't really been doing that previously? Uh, is there something unique now about about where we are in the calendar? Yeah, there is. Well, first, after about a decade of sort of appeasement, dithering, just not doing much about the democratic backsliding in Hungary, the EU finally started to get tough in the past two years. Okay, so 2022 and 23, the EU finally found its uh, backbone and some resolve in standing up to Orban, mo- uh, both through some legal means, bringing more legal cases um, against some of the things his regime is doing, but in particular by suspending funds. That's really the key, that Orban, as long as the EU's checkbook uh, remained open, and keep in mind, this is you know, big sums of money we're talking about here. Hungary is getting around of GDP handed to it in EU uh, structural funds, different funding programs every year. But the bulk of those have now been suspended to Hungary since last year, where essentially the EU has said because Hungary has uh, violated in a very systemic way a number of core rule of law norms uh, and in a way that threatens also the kind of EU budget, like there's too much risk of corruption, of EU funds, et cetera. Because of all that, they invoked a variety of mechanisms, I can go into it as much as you want, to essentially suspend billions in EU funding to Hungary. So now, um, in response to the EU getting tough, Orban is really doubling down with the extortion, saying, free up my money, release the funds to me, or I grind the EU to a halt and hold Ukraine hostage. Just structurally, I think it's a really interesting dynamic. I mean, uh, obviously, hostage taking is bad, but you know, there's been a lot of discussion of EU reform to get ready potentially for EU enlargement to incorporate Ukraine and and and, and potentially the Western Balkans, and for an EU to suddenly become go from 27 to more than 30 countries. But the problem is that then, if you have every country has a veto, particularly over foreign policy and then budget uh, related decisions. It can grind the EU to a halt. And those that sort of oppose moving to qualitative majority voting or expanding qualitative majority voting into foreign policy in other areas, note that the EU has sort of worked, right? It has gotten on. It has, you know, worked with unanimity. It's gotten a lot done, you know, especially if you can compare it to the US Congress, for instance. But I think you have this big issue now where if the EU is going to be more assertive, in how it enforces things like rule of law, starts holding back funds from Hungary, and is is trying to um, pressure member states, I think rightly, to not u- misuse the funding that it's getting and not uh, be corrupt, uh, that those member states can respond by holding the EU hostage, right? And that's what we're seeing. So I, I guess there's there's sort of a contradiction here, I think, in the how the EU structure how, how the EU is currently structured it, to both use to leverage its funding, but then it also hands a tool right back to Hungary by Hungary having a veto over the direction of the European Union. 
No, you're you're exactly right. It's a very fundamental structural weakness or flaw in the the whole system of the EU. Now, the the EU has made huge strides in extending this qualified majority, which is a kind of the technical term in the EU for a kind of supermajority voting system, to most areas. So, in most areas, individual states can't veto EU policy and grind the whole system to a halt. But as you mentioned, the two key areas where veto power remains are you know, foreign and defense policy and budget uh, issues. And those are big ticket items. And they both, those two converge in the you know, issue of Ukraine. And when you have veto power, you really have this problem, what I and colleague of mine, Mitch Orenstein, we've written about is you know, the problem of the EU's Trojan horses, where you know, if you have regimes uh, that are really you know contrary to the EU's values, autocratic regimes who have close ties to adversaries of the EU, the way the Orban regime does with Putin's Russia and Xi Jinping's China, that they can serve as Trojan horses within the system, grinding it to a halt, extorting other member states. And, you know, as you said, in the past, despite the existence of unanimity, the EU's usually been able to find workarounds. But that's also because usually there was a kind of premise you could rely on that ultimately the states really want to work together cooperatively. They want to find a common solution. But here we have regimes that really are sort of enemies within, you know, sort of uh, pursuing different strategic objectives than the others. And so they're willing to grind them to halt. Now we can talk more about solutions. I think the EU can find workarounds and and there've been sort of threats of that. Commissioner Hahn, who's in charge of budget, others have said things like, well, we can uh, find ways for the other 26 countries to agree on separate funding mechanisms for Ukraine. And they could do things like that. But if you want to work within the existing EU structures, there is a, a profound problem right now. So, okay, so let's let's talk about what the way forward is here. And maybe there isn't one. I mean, I guess perhaps there's sort of three possible paths. One is just the Hungarians sort of succeed in, in uh, hostage taking, or maybe not succeed, but they... Um, per block the ascension talks from from beginning, and and there's no agreement on on an uh, an EU budget uh, for Ukraine or the additional funding for Ukraine. Um, so that's one path. But then, okay, the second path is I think the path that you would probably oppose. But maybe let's walk through it, where EU officials try to buy off Hungary. You know that has. Essentially, I think from, you know, many EU officials might say that's worked in the past. What are the kind of options there for for EU officials? Is it letting more money go? And do you think that would make a difference and 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 get this sort of unstuck Ukraine? Okay, I think there's there's basically two choices for the EU here. And I think one of them is a a road to perdition, a disaster, and the other entails more political resolve is is the best way forward and offers some hope for the EU. The the bad way forward is to cave into extortion. I mean, as far as I know, like the FBI generally advises people not to cave into extortion because, you know, uh, then they just come back asking for more and it never stops. So what does Orban want the EU to do right now? He wants them to release the billions in EU funding that have been suspended to Hungary because of its corruption and rule of law violations. And there's, of course, a temptation and a pressure to do that, because that's maybe the simplest way to um, you know, get him to agree things on Ukraine. But that would be a disaster because, A, he will just extort them for more later. 
and B, it would send a signal to others, right? Oh, the EU um, pays off hostage takers, right? So then it's just a matter of time till the next backslider or regime makes some other extortionate threat. So it's tempting, but a disaster. And not to mention it allows him to you know, further consolidate his autocratic regime. The, the other way forward, you know, I think is to call his bluff or maybe not bluff, uh, and if necessary, to find a workaround. And there are precedents. If you think about it, very different context, but back during the Eurozone crisis, the UK, not an authoritarian regime, of course, but you know the UK, which was nervous about integration of Europe, they didn't want to support you know creating a kind of common bailout fund, uh, and so the states went outside the EU system and setting up this ESM, and then they did a, a fiscal compact treaty. They basically said we're going to set up a pool of money among all the EU states who want to participate in this, uh, leaving the UK out, and then we'll set up a set of rules for access to that. Uh, bailout money. And then what happened, and they did that to circumvent the UK veto. And later on, that whole system was kind of gradually brought inside the EU umbrella. Okay. So I think here too, you know, the, the other member states could simply sign like a treaty creating a separate fund for Ukraine and agree on contributions and say, we're not going to be held hostage. And then later, you know, once things are resolved with Hungary in some other way, they can bring that, you know, into the main budget. I think that's the way forward. Now, let's talk about sort of uh, stronger options to hit back at Hungary. I mean, this is now, uh, this is, as you mentioned, sort of repeated behavior. We should also note the Hungarians haven't yet approved Swedish membership in, in NATO as well. So this is, you know, actions on behalf of a country that, you know, the EU itself does not really consider to be a democracy anymore. You know, there's been calls for evicting Hungary from the EU. I don't think there's a clear mechanism to do that. But are there stronger steps that, that could be taken against Hungary? Hungary is also in the second half of 2024 when there'll be a, a whole new leadership of the European Commission, or maybe not a new leader of the of the commission, maybe not a new president, but 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 it will be a new commission, is set to be president of the European Council. You know, could the EU take some really stronger measures to to sort of hit back at or Orban and really send a clear message that this sort of hostage taking and violations of the rule of law uh, aren't aren't going to be tolerated anymore? Yes, they could. And first, I, I you know I want to acknowledge because I was a critic for a long time of the EU's failure to take uh, tougher measures. That you know th this money we're talking about, the suspended money, that is in a sense the toughest measure, and that's. It, that money is so important to him because it basically finances his whole patronage system and his kind of crony capitalist, clientelist uh, regime where they use the EU funds that flow through the central government to dole that out to allies of the regime. You know, that's a key. So that's why he wants that money. There, there's a there's a great uh, New York Times article that outlines uh, the the corruption in very sorted detail and how, how it actually works. Exactly. And so I think number one is the EU needs to um, you know maintain resolve with this funding. And they could even expand it, by the way. They haven't suspended all the funding. They haven't touched the ag funds, for instance. Uh, so they could even go further. But so I think the number one place to hit the regime is in its pocketbook. And they have every legal basis necessary on which to do this. These moves have been backed up by the European Court of Justice. The regime is, you know, corrupt and that's been demonstrated. So I think A, hit them in the pocketbook, do not cave in uh, on the money, keep it suspended. That's going to put pressure on the regime to change tack or cause 
uh, dissent within as people, once he can't hand out EU money to everyone, right, then he's going to have a lot less committed supporters. Number one. Number two thing, I think they should continue what they've been doing using legal mechanisms. There's even more areas where they can you know, bring what they call infringement suits, suing Hungary, imposing fines on it, et cetera. And then finally, I think maybe the one of the most powerful ones is the simplest and the least used kind of leaders in Europe really just need to denounce Orban and what he's doing. And it's shocking to me still all these years later, how few, I think really only you know, the Dutch you know, prime minister or outgoing prime minister Rutte, he said some very direct things in the classic Dutch way of being direct, you know, criticizing Orban. Xavier Battelle, uh, former prime minister of uh, Luxembourg, he said some good old things, but mostly EU leaders haven't even denounced them. You, you won't hear the word uh, uh, autocracy or democratic backsliding past the lips of any EU leader in reference to Hungary. So they've kind of, because of maybe norms of diplomatic nicety or, hey, we need to work with him on these issues, everyone has been you know afraid to speak out. Meanwhile, he insults them and the EU left and right. So I think they need to find a bit of a backbone and just be honest with the, you know, their publics and European public about, you know, what this regime is trying to do. And I think that is really the the steps I would advocate. Maybe one final question. I mean, there have been calls that uh, to suspend Hungary's voting rights within the EU and maybe take away its presidency of the European uh, yeah. of the European Council. Are those is, are those steps feasible or or I mean I think what you outlined sort of makes sense. As, uh, uh, but I'm curious if if what you think of those those steps as well. Yeah. So no. So the the suspending voting rights that has to be done via this procedure called Article Seven of the treaties that requires unanimity. In the end, there's different steps. We don't need to go through all the details, but in the end, you would need unanimity. And that includes, and that unanimity would include Hungary or? No, no, no. Sorry. The the, the state in question, yeah, doesn't get to vote on itself. Um, but, um, you know, before always, Poland would have always vetoed any action against Hungary with a new government coming in Poland. Maybe that wouldn't happen. But I still think unanimity is too high a hurdle. I think you'll find at least one ally to sort of defend him. Um, so you could kind of pursue that, but I don't think it'll work in the end. So that's not what I would advocate. Maybe now Slovakia. So I, I think the suspending voting rights, while desirable, might not be feasible. The other issue of um, suspending the Hungary from holding the rotating presidency of the EU, I think that is feasible. A colleague of mine, uh, John Marine, a professor from Groningen in the Netherlands, he's uh, you know outlined, I think, a, a strong case for that. But I think some EU leaders, not without reason, have been afraid that the the kind of legal case for that is uh, dubious. So they're worried about doing something that could backfire. Um, I do think they should suspend Hungary from the presidency, but I don't think that's as important as the other steps I outlined. Dan, I, I want to thank you so much. I think there's sort of a potential action plan if any uh, EU officials are listening to what, what they should do given if Hungary doesn't climb down. And I think uh, kowtowing to Orban's hostage taking, uh, you're exactly right. I think we'll only beget more hostage, hostage taking. And what you sort of outlined, holding even more funding, threatening the agriculture uh, cultural funds, creating sort of an off the books Ukraine fund. So maintaining the Ukraine funding. And I think on the session talks, I think it would be symbolic blow if they don't start right away. But on the other hand, I do think that dealing with the hungry problem 
is probably more important for the long-term future of the EU than the exact start date for Ascension talks. And you can sort of begin those probably kind of informally anyway, and it's still about Ukraine making progress on on, uh, adopting the key communitaire. So I think that would be a symbolic blow but would uh, ultimately dealing with the EU's rule of law problem seems really important. And then with a new Polish government, hopefully starting by the time there's a new European Council, it'll be interesting where they stand on all of this, uh, because that could bring, I think, more momentum to take a really hard line um, from the EU when it comes to countries that violate uh, the rule of law and undermine democracy. Well, I I agree with everything you said. And yeah, I think kicking the can down the road or trying to just buy off Hungary for a short-term win to start accession talks, it's definitely the wrong way forward because in the end, this issue has to be resolved before any accession is going to happen. So uh, might as well stop kicking the can down the road and face up um, you know, to, to these problems. Well, Dan, thanks so much for, for joining us on the Eurofile. We'll be, we'll, well, I'm sure we'll have you back soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. Enjoyed talking to you as always, Max. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.